Well, Joseph was born in Ireland in 1813. He was the son of British Royal Marine and went to school in London's Trinity College in 1844. He went to school to become a teacher. And it was there in school that he fell in love. And they started planning their beautiful wedding there in their hometown. And everybody was getting excited. And all the plans and arrangements had been made until tragedy struck. Perhaps you know the story. The day before his wedding, his fiancée drowned. Overcome with grief, Joseph left Ireland to start a new life in Canada. And so he taught in, at Woodstock and Brantford before establishing a home in Rice Lake. It was there that he met another young lady and fell in love again. Her name was Eliza Rice. Just weeks before she was to become his bride, she suddenly grew sick. The best doctors came from all over, but nothing seemed to help. Nothing could be done. Eliza only grew worse. And just a few days before what was to be their wedding, she passed away. So at 25 years of age, Joseph Scriven turned to deeper prayer and Bible study. He was convicted when he was reading through the Sermon on the Mount that he should sell all of his possessions and give a vow to the Lord to give his life of service to those that are handicapped and financially destitute. And he never broke that vow, from what I understand. He cut wood for people, but never for payment. He would do odd jobs. He would do things for widows or, or ladies or help care for orphans, whatever it might be, but never for himself, never for an income, but only for those that couldn't afford it. And he trusted in the Lord to provide for all of his needs. Ten years later, after his second fiance passed away, he got word that it was now his mother who was growing very sick. And she was back in Ireland, and he didn't have any resources with which to pull together and go home. And, and his heart was just wrenched. He wanted to be there for his mom, but could not. And so again, he turned to prayer. He fell to his knees, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord gave him words, words to a poem. In fact, he claims, the Lord and I wrote this poem together. It was initially titled, Pray Without Ceasing. And this is his own handwriting, pretty good handwriting, I'd say, of this poem. And you'll recognize it real quick. What a friend we have in Jesus, boy to his mother, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we so often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we cold and unbelieving, cumbered with a load of care? Here the Lord is still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And he signed his name to his mother and sent the letter on. Somebody later found that, turned that into a hymn. Dwight L. Moody picked it up, used it in his evangelism. Soon missionaries were using it around the world, to all four corners of the earth. In fact, I'm told that Eastern European immigrants sang, what a friend, as they arrived at Ellis Island. That during World War I and World War II, this was one of the favorite hymns to be sung at a church service before somebody left for military service. It became a song that was used to get people through some of the most trying, the most difficult of circumstances. 
when people were filled with insecurity and doubt, when trial or abandonment or unfair treatment or sickness would come. This song would remind them, it reminds us to pray, to give it over to the God of the universe. So my question for you this morning is, what do you do when tragedy strikes? How do you respond? If you're like many of us, you rush in to fix it. We can do this. We can take care of this. I know what to do. I know who to call. I'll send an email. We'll take care of this. We're all going to band together and we roll up our sleeves and we go to work. Interestingly, though, it's often said that health is the great equalizer. And many of you know what that means when I say that. There are things that happen to you and to others and to me that no doctor can help with. No check can be written. Yet sadly, it is often those times when we feel like we are in the depths of the dungeon with no options left, it's in those times that God can speak to us in deep and profound ways. And we hear his voice distinctly in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. I don't know about you, but I believe we're living in the last days. I believe as I look around this planet, I believe when I I just scan over the news, that's how I like to take it in oftentimes now, just a quick scan. I don't like to get into the depth of all of it, but there's very little that's encouraging, that's uplifting. It's doom, it's gloom. And we could talk about things, not just in the world, but inside the church. I believe we are living in the last days. Not that they're coming, but that they are here. And if we believe that to be true, I believe just right around the corner is going to be some overmastering delusions, if you will. Things that will try and test our faith perhaps like nothing else. And I also believe that there are times that God allows things to happen to you and to me that we call challenges to grow and build our faith so that when the biggest challenge of all comes, our God is not a stranger to us, but is a friend well-known that we have trusted in before. And we can say, if he brought me through that, he'll bring me through this. And so I wonder if the challenges that you and I face in life at times are the answer to our own prayers when we say, Lord, prepare me for that end time. I want my family circle to be unbroken. I want us all to be there. Do what you have to do. And sometimes I wonder if God says, okay, are are you sure? This may hurt a little bit. Most of the soldiers that have just enlisted don't like the boot camp commander or instructor or whatever their title but in a time of war after they've been they've gone through the gauntlet if you will they say I'm so glad for sergeant such and such he wasn't easy on us but he prepared us we're continuing this series on the sovereignty of God his provision his faithfulness even in the face of extreme trial God is faithful he knows what he's doing his will will prevail God's sovereignty is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Could it be that our challenges are to bring us to a deeper level of surrender? Ultimately, perhaps to a place of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we've been going through the story of Joseph. And you may recall on the the first uh, sermon of this series, we talked about the promise to Abraham. How is this going to be fulfilled We talked about 
Just briefly, we phased through very quickly through Isaac and Jacob and so on, and we found so much dysfunction within this family. We found deception and lying and rape and incest and jealousy and a plot for murder, the selling of their own flesh and blood, their brother, in this story of Joseph. We talked about as, as Joseph was on his way to Egypt, as he saw what he knew to be home fading in the distance, that he committed his life then and there to the Lord and his purposes and his plans, unknowing what the future would hold when he got to this foreign land to him called Egypt. We talked a little bit last time about how different things were in Egypt. The culture was different. The food was different. The people were different. Their spiritual beliefs were different. Could Joseph hold up against the onslaught, the pressure? Yet we find for 10 whole years, he's in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar comes to recognize the reason Joseph is successful is because of his God and his faithfulness to his God. Somehow, Joseph maintains his integrity year after year after year until eventually it comes to a head. And this was last week, Potiphar's wife, so filled with desire for Joseph, sought to overcome him through seemingly overwhelming temptation. The house has been cleared. She is being so forceful and forthright. Come to bed with me. Yet Joseph again maintains his integrity and says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The one who's watching, who sees all things. How could I do this wicked thing? Knowing full well the consequences that would more than likely develop and did develop. Right now in the news, there's a hot topic. Is somebody innocent or is somebody guilty? Who's being falsely accused? Or is this in fact truth? I don't know about that story, but I know in this one, we know that Joseph was innocent. We know that Joseph did the right thing, but we know that Joseph too was set up. A trap was laid. He honored the Lord his God. He did the right thing, and now he was suffering for it, and he's back in a dungeon. And we asked last time, where is God in the midst of all of this, as Joseph is imprisoned and seemingly forgotten. Have you ever been there? You did the right thing. You were seeking to do God's will, to be faithful to him in all things. And instead of being rewarded, you felt like you were cast aside. We would be good to go back. And let's pick up the last few verses we ended last time. I hope you brought your Bibles. We're in Genesis chapter 39, the last few verses. And today we're going to go through chapter 40 together. But it's as if the author seems to anticipate that we're going to ask the question, God, where are you in the midst of this crisis? And so we get this reminder again, as we see over and over in chapter 39. But we see it here in verse 21 of chapter 39 of Genesis. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand, all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever they did there, it was his own doing. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. And here's why. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Whatever your hand finds to do, wherever it finds itself, Joseph decided, I'm going to blossom where I'm planted. 
He didn't sulk. He didn't say, this is a waste of you know, my time and my energy, my resources, whatever else. He says, I'm going to do the best that I can in prison. I'm going to be the best inmate I can be. And he was honored. And so then we get to the chapter we're focusing on today. We're still in Genesis chapter 40, the verses that follow here. And it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their Lord, the king of Egypt. Now let's pause right there. The butler and the baker. These aren't just any ordinary. I mean, it might seem like, okay, they're ordinary. They're not ordinary. If you are the butler for the king, if you are the baker for the king, you are the best of the best. You are entrusted with the diet of the king. You know just how he likes it. You know when he likes it. You make sure it is the right temperature and that it's on time and all of these things. You trust this individual. Not to mention in that day and age, if you want to do somebody in, you just slip something into their food. You better trust your baker. You better trust the butler. He's the one, too, that also tastes things beforehand. So if anybody's going to die, it's not going to be the king. It's going to be the butler. He's the secret service detail, if you will. But here they are, as it comes to pass, Joseph is there, and who might happen to come in but two high-profile individuals because the king was offended. Verse 2, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them so that they were in custody for a while. We really don't get any background. We don't know what took place. We don't know what happened. It probably had something to do with food. Maybe it had to do with the assassination attempt. We don't know, but the king is upset. Both of you, out. Verse 5, then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined to the prison, had a dream. Both of them. Each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with his own interpretation. Verse 6, and Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. Let me submit to you that if you're overwhelmed, if you're licking your wounds, if you're having a pity party, the last thing you notice is when somebody else is having a bad day. Yet Joseph is making the rounds, if you will, and he sees, he saw that they were sad. And so Joseph, seen beyond his own troubles beyond the fact that he's seemingly forgotten there, he asked Pharaoh's officers, verse 7, who were with him in custody of the Lord's house, saying, why do you look so sad today? Hey, guys, what's, what's going on? You look down. Tell me what's going on. And they said to him, we each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. See, in that time, you brought in somebody, and this was like a science, if you will. They had whole books. This meant this, and this meant that, and all these things. And they would come up with the, the meanings of these dreams. They felt very strong that every dream had a meaning and an interpretation. And they say, we don't know who could interpret this dream. Now, it could be that Joseph said, no, 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 I signed off of dreams. I've been there once before. It didn't end well for me. I'm just going to say, huh. Well, I'll put in a request. Maybe we can get somebody down here and... I'm really sorry about that. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Here's an everyday 
conversation, and here we have a contagious Adventist, don't we? Isn't this something that God could help with? Doesn't God know all things? Couldn't God interpret this dream? Tell them to me, please. Verse 9, And the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and the vine were three branches, and it was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. I mean, this is good news. Just three days from now, I will be restored, he's thinking. This is wonderful. I will be vindicated. I knew that they would find out that I was not the guilty party here. And then Joseph's human side comes out. He sees a bit of an opportunity. Verse 14, but remember me when it is well with you. Remember me. And please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. I also have done nothing. How much? Nothing here that should put me into the dungeon. Have you ever said that? I didn't do anything. I'm, I'm innocent here. No, come on. You had to have done something. I did nothing. I don't think Joseph is yelling, but he's, he's saying, please remember me. When you go back, get me out of here. From our estimates, he's probably been there a year already. In fact, we can calculate that pretty specifically with various texts. He's been there a year already. He says, remember me. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head, and the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and, and, and the, the birds came, ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, man of integrity here, by the way, could have made something up, same three days, maybe a better outcome by the time he knows the difference. This is the interpretation of it, verse 18. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree. Huge sign of disgrace, by the way. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. Doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? And the story continues on. I wonder what Bible study may or may not have been had at that point. I wonder what soul searching. I wonder if he stormed off or if he burst into tears. I wonder if he asked Joseph any other questions. I don't know. We're left to, to wonder. But this in verse 20, now it came to pass. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. See, they kept birthdays way back in Egypt thousands of years ago, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. 
And they restored the chief butler to his butlership again. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker. As Joseph had interpreted to them. Here it is. Here's my chance. He's been restored. He again has the ear of the king. It certainly can only be days now, weeks at the most. Something is going to happen. There's going to be a break for me. You don't help somebody that's that high up for nothing. Perhaps the Lord sent this person to my, in my path so I could do this thing and, then, and on and on. And so he's working out this plan, very hopeful that it will work. But then we read in verse 23, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. If we borrow the first part of the next verse, for two whole years... He forgot him. Now, as far as his age at this point, we know he was 17 when his brother sold him as a slave. It tells us that in Genesis 37, verse 2. Patriarchs and Prophets says he was 10 years in Potiphar's service. Then later it tells us in Genesis 41, 46, he was 30 when he was brought before Pharaoh. And so that gives us three years. So if he's waiting two, it took one year to establish himself in prison, and two years he's waiting, three years total he's in prison. Waiting. 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 Well, I guess that plan didn't work. Lord, is this really what you want for me? Is this the best service I can give you? Because I feel a little limited here. I mean, is your plan for me so small, God, that you want me in charge of a prison with a bunch of riffraff, misfits, criminals? I mean, will I ever get out of this cave? And Joseph sees an opening. He takes his best shot and nothing for days, for weeks, for months, for years. God, where are you? Friend, if you haven't figured it out, God does some of his best work in dungeons and in caves. In times that you may feel abandoned or persecuted, God is doing a work in you. I mean, Moses was out in the wilderness for 40 years and God was shaping him for the service he had for him. David was fleeing for his life. He lost his job and his wife, his spiritual mentor, his friends. God was preparing David. Job was stripped of everything that he had materially and his children. God says, Job, I have a special work for you to do. Paul had to be blinded literally so that he could see. It was Jacob that when he wrestled with God that his life was forever changed. And we could go on and on and on, but we see this happen again and again and again. God has to break us down and put us in places where there's nothing else to distract us and he can put his character and his, his way of doing things, his thinking into our minds and into our hearts because he says, I have a job for you to do later. But first I have to prepare you. 
God uses the broken times in our lives to teach us, I believe, some of the most valuable lessons. What does it say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted? I don't like to be persecuted. Do you like to be persecuted? I don't want anything to do with being persecuted. But here he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because they're annoying? Annoying? No. For righteousness' sake. Just before that, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. God wants us to be peacemakers. But there are some people that when you stand for the right, when you stand for righteousness, though the heavens fall, somebody will not like you and will persecute you. You will be a target. And Jesus knows this. And so he says right from the get-go, first words out of his lips if you will. This Sermon on the Mount, what is he all about? And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. This is the one of the Beatitudes that is unpacked a little bit more. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Friends, sometimes justice is served on this earth, but many times justice will be served later. How come? I just don't understand. This isn't fair. Blah, blah, blah. I, I get it. It's not fair. I know you don't understand, but great is your reward in heaven. Don't give up. Don't bail out. Don't throw in the towel. You, like Joseph, you just wait in the dungeon until the Lord decides to pull you out. He's doing a work in your life. Matthew 11, verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, John never wrote a book that landed in Scripture in the canon. John didn't receive the Ten Commandments. John wasn't taken directly to heaven. Yet here Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And what did John do? His entire life was to point people to the Messiah. And he died in his 30s as a martyr. And Jesus says he's the greatest prophet. Reminds me of this chapter in Desire of Ages in reference to John, actually. Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and highest honor. Let that sink in for a minute. Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, I didn't know suffering was a gift. Apparently it is. Of all the gifts he can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his suffering is the most weighty trust and highest honor. John 15, 20. Here Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Suffering is part of it. Persecution is part of it. Feeling abandoned is part of it. But we don't like it. We don't like any of the above. And so we try to jump in and fix it. Moses slays the Egyptian. John the Baptist sends his disciples to question Jesus. And like Joseph, we say, remember me. I did nothing wrong. Say a good word. We try and get in. We try and fix it. We think God needs our help. We pull every string we know to pull. 
when perhaps we need to do, or what we need to do is simply rest in the sovereignty of God and say, Lord, when it's time for you to get me out of this mess, I'm open to that. But in the meantime, just help me to be faithful. Help me to be upbeat. Help me to keep reading your word and and memorizing scripture. Help me to see your goodness in the midst of all this. Help me to grow more like you. Help me to be humble and teachable. And Lord, please help me to learn whatever lessons I need to learn because I don't want to be here much longer. (laughs) Patriarchs and Prophets 2.18, God was preparing Joseph in the school of affliction. Somebody here is in the school of affliction, I know. God was preparing, is preparing you in the school of affliction for greater usefulness. And he, Joseph, did not refuse the needful discipline. But so often we refuse it. We step in and try to fix it. I'm going to ask Judith Thomas to come up here, and she's going to share a little experience that she has been having and some of the lessons the Lord is trying to show her, if you will. So Judith, tell us. My name is Judith Thomas, and I'm a fixer. And I'm a fixer because I can't deal with waiting. I don't know how I'd have coped with two years in that prison cell, but I'm a fixer. The Lord has been working with me for quite a few years in the gentlest of ways, trying to show me that I don't trust him. Every family has a fixer, the go-to person when something goes wrong. Your children know who the fixer is. Your grandchildren know who the fixer is. They know whether to go to grandma or gramps. Your siblings know who the fixer is. Every family has one. As I say, the Lord has been working with me for quite a while. Last week, I said to the Lord, Lord, I'm changed. I don't do it anymore. If you notice, I've not done it for a number of weeks. (laughs) You know, I'm okay now. I've even changed the way that I pray. I don't pray anymore saying, Lord, do such and such, and Lord, and and do this, and Lord, make sure that this happens, and Lord, I I don't pray like that anymore. I've stopped telling the Lord how to fix it. I now just say, Lord, thou knowest, thou seest, you see the situation. So I said, Lord, can the trial be over now? (laughs) Because I'm, I'm better. A few days later, I received a text. And the text shook me to the core. So the first thing I did, because remember I'm healed, the first thing I did, I ran in the bedroom and I was very dramatic about it. I fell down on my face on the floor and I said, okay, Lord, I'm not going to try to fix this. I'm not. I just need to make one phone call. And it will just be one phone call. (laughs) And I was really serious. I really believed what I was saying. It was pitiful. I said, I'm just going to make one phone call and that's it. And I felt the Lord say to me, go and talk to Charles. I said, no, no, Lord, I'm not going to fix it. I'm just going to make one phone call, that's all, it will be short, that's it. He said again, go and talk to Charles. So I said, okay, I'll go talk to Charles. So I went, uh, any of you that don't know, Charles is my husband, and he sat right there. So I went to Charles, and I showed him the text. 
And Charles looked at it and he thought for a while and he said, leave it alone. <laughs> so I, I said, oh, Charles, no, I'm not going to try to fix this. I'm just going to make one call. I think it's important that I say this thing, but that's all I'm going to say. Charles looked again and he says, ah, leave it alone. And, um, and I said again, Charles, just one call. It's going to be short. That's all I'm going to say. And he just shrugged and said, okay. So I went into the bedroom. I dialed and I made that call. And I'm talking. And before I know it, the conversation ballooned and ballooned. And before I knew it, I was in absolute full fix-it mode. And um, from the corner of my eye, I saw Charles peep round the door. <laughs> and, and it was only then that I realized um, what I was doing. And I know it sounds funny, but it was kind of devastating. <laughs> it was kind of devastating because I realized. And so I quickly wound up the call and hung it up. And I just felt the Lord saying to me, see, you don't trust me. So I went back into Charles and, um, and I, said to, I said to Charles how um, it had hit me so hard when the Lord flooded my mind with that thought. And I said, it's true. When the rubber hits the road, when it's really tough, I go full steam into fixing it because I can't take the weight. I realize now it's the weight that's the issue. They're just going on and on in the trial that won't end. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you knew, didn't you? <laughs> All right. So God in his mercy had to send me a trial that I can do nothing to fix. And that's where I am right now. In the midst of a trial that I can do absolutely nothing to fix it. I have to learn to trust him. I am learning to actually embrace the trial and to stop trying to rescue my family when the Lord is allowing a trial to save them. I'm there smoothing the path before them, brushing all the crumbs out of the path so they can have a smooth journey. And the Lord is saying, stop, I'm trying to save your family. I'm trying to save your kids, your, your grandchild, your, your mom, your sisters. I'm trying to save them. Stop it. And if some of you don't stop it too, you're going to get a trial that you can do nothing to fix. And you're going to watch those dearest to you go through it. You know, um, Ministry of Healing, page 417, and this is what has helped give me strength. Ministry of Healing, page 417, paragraph 3. And it gives me great calm as I read it because I envision the scene. It says, above the distractions of the earth, he, God, sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey. And from his great and calm eternity, he orders that which his providence sees best. And I thought, okay, he sees it best that my kids go through this. He sees it best that my sister goes through that. He sees it best that I go through this. 
And nothing's a surprise. He's not going, look what's happening there. Nothing's a surprise. His eternity is calm. It's peaceful. It's not like us scurrying around here like mice. And from his calm and peaceful eternity, he orders that which his providence sees best. And so I'm learning to embrace the trial and to thank him for it. I'm learning to stop rescuing my family. And Psalm 37 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. In the midst of the trial, feed on how good you know he is. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall bring it to pass. Trust him. Can anybody relate to that a little bit? The sincerity of a mother's heart. Beautiful. Thank you, Judith, for being transparent with us. As it relates to Joseph's story, I I think God knew it wasn't the right time. And he didn't want Joseph to be tripped up in thinking, you figured it out. You solved this on your own. Patriarchs and Prophets 2.19 says, To all other trials was added the bitter sting of ingratitude, being forgotten, being ignored. It says, But a divine hand was about to open the prison gates. Friends, we don't open the prison gates. It's that divine hand. He is the only fixer. And so we trust in the sovereignty of God, in his timing, in the way that he knows is best. And that's what I believe he's calling each of us to do. And I think throughout this congregation, something has come to your mind. Some area, some issue. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I I see it. I'm a fixer too. I try and get my grubbies on it, and I try and work with it enough, and I try and finesse it and use this, that, and the other, and bring about the outcome that I think God wants. But maybe you've been convicted that you've been meddling when God is saying, be still and know that I am God. And so I just want to make a call. We're going to sing, here's another verse, Ephesians 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Is that God? Can he do exceedingly above and beyond anything we can even imagine? What do you imagine the best outcome could possibly be? And God says, no, I can go way above that. I'm going to go way beyond that. I'm going to stretch that. I'm going to inflate that. I'm going to make it so much bigger than you can even imagine. Just let me do it. And so we're going to sing that song of of Scrivens here in just a little bit, or in just a moment, I suppose. So Sandy, if you want to come up, it's hymn number 499. But I challenge you to take a hint from Joseph. And whether you're victimized, whether you feel abandoned, whether it's a health issue, whatever it might be, continue to wait and to trust and to hope and to lean on the sovereignty of God. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grieves to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because he could have said we try and fix it. Because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If there's something in your life that you need to say, Lord, I've tried. Maybe I'm tempted to try, but good chance that you've tried. And you want to say, Lord, I'm done. This is going to have to be yours. You're going to have to do it. I can't do it may involve a a relationship, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, 
maybe work-related. You don't know what the future holds. It could be a host of things. But if you just symbolically want to lay that at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I surrender this to you. I'm going to simply make it a matter of prayer and trust that you know it's best. I invite you to come meet me down here at the front. Our dear Heavenly Father, truly you are our friend. You always have our best interest at heart. And we can say the same about our loved ones, our kids, our brothers, our sisters, our parents. Lord, you always know what is best. Yet so often we choose to forfeit our peace. We choose to carry our griefs, to bear them on our own, to do our best to fix it. When you're just asking us to lay it down. And so, Lord, we're doing that this morning. We want to lay it down this morning and say, Lord, we trust you. Our hope is in you. Our faith is in you. You will be our refuge. Lord, may you do what needs to be done in your time. We pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.